Okay, let's get into it. Religion and politics. Who's up for some conversation? Uh, this is, I sometimes feel like I'm stepping in a minefield when I take on topics like this, and I force myself to do it, not because I delight in doing these kind of things, but no one else is forcing me to do it, so I have to force myself. Uh, the kind of funny thing about this, though, is I planned a four-week series, but realized I'm only preaching two of them. And so I've actually forced Samuel and Eric to also come with me in this insanity and uh, also speak about religion and politics. And so there, you're going to hear from them and their voices and perspectives uh, over the next couple of weeks. And I'm excited about that, and then I'll come back and correct everything in the final week. <clears throat> no, it's great to hear a number of voices because that's important as we dialogue together around these, these incredible topics. So last week, just to recap, the thing that we really want to hold on to uh, is the instruction from Paul to Timothy that when it comes to political engagement, first of all, pray. If you remember nothing else, Remember this, first of all, pray. That's the instruction that Paul gave to Timothy as he was pastoring in the church in Ephesus, a very influential, very Roman-type church. He said, first of all, pray. Pray for everyone, but especially pray for those in leadership. Pray for the king and all those in authority. Pray that God would help them. Pray and intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them and pray that they might come to know the truth about Jesus. Pray, pray, pray. First of all, pray. And that phrase, first of all, it's not like a checklist. Okay, done that. I prayed once, now I'm going to get on with whatever else I wanna do. No, it's, it's a sense of enduring priority. First of all, and first of all, each and every day, pray. And so if this is all that we do in terms of political engagement, then we know that we are doing God's will, right? Pray. If you don't want to have any further political conversations, if you're just sick and tired of it, this is the priority. First of all, pray. But is there more? Is there more that we're called to do in terms of political engagement as followers of Jesus? And where might we find an example of that? In fact, the question I want to ask today is, was Jesus political. Now, this is really stepping into the minefield. Was Jesus political? I've just mentioned during communion that it was a political charge that was brought against him before the authorities. Was Jesus himself political? I would say the simple answer is yes. I had an opportunity to visit uh, Lebanon uh, a few years back. And if we think that we are in a politically um, escalated climate, just go to the Middle East. Uh, we've been doing it for maybe 100 to 200 years here. It's thousands of years strong in some places around the world. And as I spent time in, in Lebanon and into Syria, uh, it, it was just the political conversation is just that much more charged. And Jesus was in that kind of environment. Do you think he had something to say about it? I think he did. Do you think he has something to do about it? I think he did. And so we need to look to Jesus. But here's the problem. I think we often mask the political actions and statements of Jesus. 
And we do it in a number of ways, and we might not even realize that we're doing it. We depoliticize Jesus, his, both his words and his actions, because it makes us feel a little more comfortable. At least two ways I think we do that. One is we turn church and faith into a commodity, or at least something to be consumed. And it's hard not to do that when we have sort of settings like this, where you've got some random guy, well, hopefully not random, um, speaking, and you're there just consuming. And so hopefully this is something of a dialogue to get past that. But it's very easy in the church to fall into the commodity of faith, that faith is something that we actually purchase or something that we simply consume, and it has no relevance really beyond that. And so we miss out on this counter-cultural counter political community that Jesus was shaping and forming that was meant to be in the world but not of the world. And so that's a challenge to us to maybe have a look again at some of the teachings of Jesus and see what he was actually asking us to do. But the other way that we, I think, mask some of the political uh, conversations and actions of Jesus is that we spiritualize them. We love to do this. Uh, we do it as Baptists. We do it uh, for centuries in the church. We spiritualize these conversations. Here's what I mean. This is going to be my example. Jesus actually talks a lot in the gospel about a concept called jubilee. And this is an Old Testament Jewish concept. You can look it up. It permeates a lot of the scriptures in the Old Testament. And when Jesus starts his ministry, he actually quotes from Isaiah and he quotes from this concept of jubilee, this concept that included at least four different actions. One was, in the year of jubilee, you were meant to let the land lie fallow. That's don't produce anything on that field, on that land. And it was an act of faith, because that's pretty terrifying not to produce a crop that year. But it was, it was also good for the land to let the land rest. So let the land lie fallow. The second thing, free the slaves. In the year of Jubilee, anybody who couldn't pay their debt and maybe had, had uh, indentured themselves to a person to pay off their debt, to work for them for free, they were to be freed. The slaves were to be free. Cancel debts. That's my favorite part of the year of Jubilee. I would have been a terrible person if this was actually still around because the year before, my credit cards would be maxed out. Cancel all the debts. And then the fourth thing is redistribute the land. So even if someone had given you their land to pay off a debt, you know what? It went back to the original owners. This is radical stuff, and it's radical stuff in the Old Testament uh, culture and times. But it's radical because it's used again in the words of Jesus. That's how he starts out. When he starts talking about the gospel, these words are included in that. What are we meant to do with that? Well, here's what we do sometimes. We spiritualize it. So when we talk about the land being fallow, well, that's really talking about not working for our salvation. When we talk about freeing slaves, we're actually talking about we are slaves bound by sin and Jesus has set us free. See where I'm going with this? When, when we talk about canceling debts, we don't really mean cancel debts. I mean, what we mean is forgive each other, right? Forgive each other in a spiritual sense. 
And so Doug that still owes me $10, I'm going to collect that debt. I might forgive the fact that he forgot to pay me back, but I'm going to collect. He's not here today, is he? Okay. Shoot. And redistribute land. We, we spiritualize that into, well, we're all just travelers passing through to a better country. You see what we do? It's not that those are wrong theology. We're not to work for our salvation. We're not bound by the shackles of sin. We're freed from that. We are to forgive others, and we are travelers passing through. But here's my question. What if the radical politics of Jesus actually is calling us to do some of these things? What if the the radical politics of Jesus is actually asking us to follow his example? What if Jesus isn't just our Savior? He is. Don't misunderstand me. Don't mishear me. What if Jesus isn't just our Savior, but he's also our example as well? What if? 1 Peter 2 and verse 21 says it. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his steps. So it's one thing to, you know, be saved, to accept Jesus Christ into our life, to recognize him as our Lord and Savior, to have our golden ticket straight to heaven. But is that all we are? Is a group of people sitting with our golden tickets waiting to get to heaven? Or are we being formed into radical community that is following Jesus, called to act differently in the world around us? That's the question. That's the challenge, I think, on me that I struggle with as a leader in this community, but for all of us as followers of Jesus. What does it look like to live out some of those um, words of Jesus? Well, the early church seemed to take this kind of literally. And if you get a glimpse of the early church, you can, you can read it in Acts chapter 2. Uh, listen to what um, happened in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over all of them, and the apostles performed many miracles and signs and wonders. All the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day and met in their homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. What an amazing glimpse into the early church who began to live this out. Now, this isn't communism we're talking about. That's not, it's not a forced, forcing the state, forcing people to do all this. This is something that works in the church by the Spirit to release generosity that is unprecedented in the world around us. And that's part of the community that Christ is calling us to. Are you feeling uncomfortable yet? I hope so. I do. I certainly do. As I wrestle with this, of what does it mean to follow Jesus, especially in our world where we have so much affluence and opportunity, right? Well, as we come to talk about the political life of Jesus, uh, we have one of the political showdowns, and it's in our passage. And uh, we're going to read that passage right now. I just realized, did we have, we had no one reading. Am I reading? 
Yes, I'm reading. Okay. Um, so the, the passage is in Matthew chapter 22, and my sermon will not make sense unless we read this. And that's a good thing, right? So just so you know, I'm not making this stuff up. Uh, let's read from Matthew chapter 22 and beginning to read at verse 15. Then the Pharisees met together to plot how to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. They sent some of their disciples, along with the supporters of Herod, to meet with him. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You teach the way of God truthfully. You impart and you don't play, you are impartial and you don't play favorites. See what they're doing? They're kind of buttering him up. They're speaking nice words. Now tell us what you think about this. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Remember what I said about the accusation against Jesus that brought him before the authorities? Well, this is where it all begins. But Jesus knew their evil motives. You hypocrites, he said. Why are you trying to trap me? Here, show me the coin used for the tax. When they handed him a Roman coin, he asked, whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well then, he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and give to God what belongs to God. We need to understand this passage a little bit. What's happening here? I think I grew up understanding this about the passage, and maybe you did too, that this passage was teaching us, one, pay your taxes, and two, put something in the offering plate at church, right? Give to, to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and give to God what belongs to God. But I think it goes way beyond that. I think there's actually something else happening here. These people are trying to trap Jesus. In fact, if you read the whole chapter, there's different groups of people coming, trying to trap Jesus, trying to paint him into a corner in order that they might get rid of him, that they might arrest him. And this is one such occasion. There's two groups at play here. One is the Pharisees, and we hear a lot about the Pharisees. And sometimes we're kind of hard on the Pharisees, right? Because Jesus is. He calls them out a lot of times. But these were very, very devoted people. I mean, they would put us to shame with their level of righteousness. But the Pharisees were concerned about Jesus, and so they wanted to trap him. But the second group were the Herodians. And we don't know much about the Herodians apart from this. They supported Herod. And Herod was the Roman authority in town. And so essentially, they supported the Roman regime. So what do we have here? We have religion and secular state coming together to try and trap Jesus. That's what's happening. So should we pay taxes to Caesar, yes or no? That's the question that they put to Jesus. Well, what's at stake here? If Jesus says yes, what will happen? Well, the Pharisees will accuse him of disloyalty at best and probably idolatry. If no, the Herodians will accuse, accuse him of sedition, of insurrection against Rome. Talk about a political catch-22. So how does Jesus respond? Well, he responds by exposing their hypocrisy. Jesus always does this, right? You got to be careful asking Jesus any question because you know he's going to turn it around back on you. And he does this with the people. He says, show me a coin. And this is important. Whose image is on it? 
And on that coin, there would be the image of Caesar with the inscription that would read something like, uh, he is of divine origin, right? It would be something of the divinity of Caesar in the inscription and then his image. And Jesus says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. What was his point? Well, here is what I think it is. Just as the coin bears the image of Caesar and belongs to him, so you and I bear the image of God and belong to God. In fact, I think we could take it a step further. Even Caesar bears the image of God and belongs to God. And so although the coins might belong to Caesar, everything in the end belongs to God. And Paul, or Paul, and Jesus sets this up as saying, yes, there are authorities in the world, but there is one ultimate, ultimate authority, and that is God himself. And it silences the people that come to him. How do we understand this? How do we apply this to ourselves? Well, I think one of the things and one of the ways to understand this is to understand that we are, as followers of Jesus, in fact, kind of dual citizens in this earth. Yes, we are citizens of Canada. I think most of us here are citizens of Canada. But it's pointed out in the New Testament that we are ultimately citizens of heaven if we are following Jesus. I have two passports um, because I have dual citizenship. I'm a British citizen and I have a British passport. I was going to bring it today because it's old and it has a picture of me with hair. And I was going to just, you know, put that up on the screen so you can all see. And so I have a British passport, but I also have a Canadian passport because I'm also a Canadian citizen. I'm allowed to do that. I have a kind of dual citizenship. When I was studying for my undergraduate uh, in Scotland, just around that time, the Gulf War erupted. And all of a sudden, we heard that British citizens might be conscripted into the army. And I said, but I'm Canadian. It's very convenient to have my British citizenship because I didn't have to get a visa and I could get a, you know, privileges, all sorts of things. But I was Canadian. And when Margaret Thatcher introduced a poll tax to everybody in Scotland, what did I say? I'm Canadian. It's interesting, my mom and dad, as they immigrated from Scotland to Canada, um, they were very quick to take out Canadian citizenship. And even though my mom still has uh, an accent as, as thick as Linda Ferguson, um, <clears throat> as you talk to her, she will tell you she is Canadian. What's my point in all that? Even though we have dual citizenship sometimes, we still have a priority citizenship. And that's part of what we find working out throughout the text in the New Testament. There is this kind of obligation, yes, to be good citizens in the country in which we reside. But there is ultimately a calling that goes beyond that, a priority citizenship that goes beyond that. We see Paul working this out in his uh, practical realities. The Apostle Paul, uh, one time we can read about this in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas were put in prison. And if you know the story, you'll kind of remember it. They were put in prison and they were, they were actually flogged and beaten and shackled in prison. A miracle happened and they were released, but they didn't go anywhere, right? It's the whole story of the Philippian jailer. But in the morning, the authorities sent word, 
Just send those guys out quietly. They realized they'd made a mistake. Send them out quietly. And what did Paul do? He goes, not a chance. You have abused my rights as a citizen. He said, I'm a Roman citizen, and you have abused my rights. You're going to come down here yourself and let me out. It was a kind of form of political protest that Paul was launching. And he asserted his rights as a citizen. Paul does it again in Acts chapter 22. He's about to get another beating, and he says uh, to the guard, is it right to flog a Roman citizen without proper trial? And the guy's like, whoa, I didn't realize that. And so it creates a whole crisis among the, uh, the Roman guard, and they decide that they can't actually do it because he's a citizen. So it's interesting to see Paul asserting this citizenship, earthly citizenship. But ultimately, Paul says this, writing to the church in Philippi, he says that for Christians, our citizenship ultimately is in heaven. What does that mean for us? I'm going to let you kind of work that out uh, because it takes us in all different directions sometimes. But here's what I say. We have lots of political views in this church. If we had roundtable discussions right after this, we'd see that we, we land on uh, different ideas and ideologies on all kinds of topics. And that's fine. In fact, I would say that's essential. We also support different political parties. And I think that is essential to a healthy parliamentary democracy. We need that. So that person in the last election that voted for the other party, thank them. I mean, if we all voted all the time for one party, that would not be democracy. It just wouldn't. And the reality is, as we look at different parties and their different values and their different platforms, sometimes as followers of Jesus, we can say, I can get behind that one, and I can get behind that one, and I can get behind that one. And we can understand this if we have a bigger view. And that's why we need people to vote opposite from us. That's what it means to live together in a democracy. And so we should be thanking those on the opposite. Maybe you don't feel that way, but I really think we should. Because ultimately, as we wrestle with this citizenship here and our responsibilities, ultimately we are all united as citizens of heaven. And that's our priority citizenship. That's ultimately where we belong. And so that's why I say that as we come and recognize our priority citizenship, that public worship is a political statement. In it, we declare that Jesus is king. So when we come here, we're already engaging in a political statement. And I would say this, loving our neighbor is one of the greatest political actions that we can ever take. I think sometimes when we see uh, the problems in our world, if we see uh, people experiencing homelessness or we see addiction or we see a, a lot of um, unrest in our world, uh, we, we put all that on our government as if say, fix it, fix it for us. But I think as followers of Jesus, we can't abdicate our responsibility in the world. I think part of our calling is if we see our brother and sister in need, we are called to respond to that need with generosity and grace and wisdom. And so we must first live authentic lives of love even before we get to call on the government to be more just or more kind or more humble. 
And we must never outsource our role as citizens of heaven to human governments because we are called to behave differently in the world. And when our dual citizen comes into conflict, we should always demonstrate that our public witness is more important than winning a political battle because we're called to follow Jesus first and foremost. So lots to think about today, and maybe I've touched a few buttons that we can talk about later. But I would say that the politics of Jesus are very real, and he's calling us to be in the world but not of the world in a particular way. Yes, we are absolutely called to be good citizens in this country, but ultimately, we are called as citizens of heaven. And ultimately, the politics of Jesus are rooted in love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray together. Father, even as I was speaking this morning, I'm running through scenarios in my mind saying, okay, that's fine, but what about this? And what about this? We recognize, Father, that the call of your Son upon our lives um, is not easy. And he warned us that it wouldn't be. And so we need your Spirit. Uh, we need the Spirit of Jesus to be in us as individuals and as a community so that we might live in such a way in this world that we bring glory to you and to your son, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.